this morning and let's open to Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13. By the grace of God, I shall finish this morning our study of the greatest epistle in the New Testament. I say that without any fear of someone refuting me. It is the most glorious of the epistles as it sets forth the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we can finish it this morning and then make a quick review back to the pages of what we've covered from that glorious Sunday morning several months ago when we looked at Hebrews chapter 1 and began with that greatest of all words in the English language, God. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, and so on. We are now at the end of this great epistle. Hebrews chapter 13, we'll take up at verse 17 and continue through the end. Verse 17 is a standalone verse which I'll read to you. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. The apostle has already dealt with the ministry in verse 7 of this same chapter, but he repeats himself in a little different way in the 17th verse. And if the apostle, by the Holy Spirit, took liberty to repeat himself, I'll take liberty this morning to repeat myself a little. I'll not preach two messages again, as I did on the seventh verse. I'll probably only preach a quarter or an eighth of all of that. But I'm going to repeat myself because Paul did. If Paul could repeat himself ten verses later in an epistle, there must be a reason for repeating this particular admonition for your prophet. It's for your prophet. So no one should chafe that I have that I deal with verse 17 again or the, the concept of verse 17 again. Obey them that have the rule over you. You are called to obedience to the office and the person in the office that God has put over this congregation. That obedience is involved in obeying what He teaches from the Word of God. When I lay the Word of God upon you and its demands, you are to obey that teaching. Titus chapter 2, which is easy for you to find. It just means flipping back a few pages to the book before Hebrews. Except for a little book. Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I'm to speak, I'm to exhort, and I'm to rebuke with all authority. And it is your job to obey what I teach from the Scriptures. Notice Paul laid out what was to be taught, and then he said these things. It's what's in the Scripture. That's the first thing you're to obey. You are to obey my judgment in matters that require judgment, such as those matters of church discipline that require some judgment. Can you think of any offhand? Attendance is one we've had to deal with before and is so obvious that someone has to draw a line at when attendance is forsaking or when the lack of attendance is forsaking the assembly. Covetousness. 
unrighteousness, wickedness, effeminacy. How are those sins to be judged in a congregation? They're not what we call black and white sins. A black and white sin is a sin like murder. And I've, I've used this illustration before. Either you've killed a person or you haven't killed them. But sins like forsaking the assembly are more subjective in nature and require judgment. It's your job to obey the man that God has put over you. In the distribution of charity in the church, and I've made these points before, I know that, you are to submit to the judgment of the pastor who is responsible for making sure that gifts are allocated equitably among those that have need. In a matter of controversy that might arise between two brothers in this church, the final say has to be the man that God has put over the congregation as its ruler. Just as in a home, the father is the one that makes the final judgment in a matter of controversy. Ministers must rightly judge and divide between differences and controversies that arise in the scriptures themselves. Remember that passage I read where there will be judgment against precept, testimony against statute? One of you brothers may raise some passage of scripture, another brother raise an opposing, apparently opposing passage. Who will settle the difference? We don't settle it by voting. Now, a lot of churches settle it by voting, either in a committee of deacons or the whole congregation. We don't arbitrate truth by democracy. And I don't say that to make myself some dictator over your faith. I say that because God said it. He established judges to make those decisions. And it's not something that a pastor takes lightly to even think about the prospect of it ever occurring. Believe me, it's not something that a pastor takes lightly. In all matters of business that require a decision, someone has to be the final authority to make decisions. And you are to obey him, your pastor, when he does that. There will be matters of liberty or matters that are gray areas not defined well in the Word of God because the Word of God was not addressing 20th century difficulties directly. And the pastor must make judgments in those areas and as far as you are able with your conscience, you should obey them that have the rule over you. That, those are examples of how to obey them that have the rule over you. I've preached it before. I don't need to elaborate further on that particular clause. But it goes on to say, and... Submit yourselves. And submit yourselves. Submission is necessary for a church-pastor relationship to ever begin. It's like a man and his wife. Can a man force a woman to submit to him? Not if you're smart. You won't say yes. She may nod her head in agreement, but she hasn't really submitted yet. And if there isn't a relationship of submission and loving authority, the marriage won't work. Can a king force his subjects to submit to him? All governments are popular. All governments are popular. That means the people have approved of them and have willingly submitted to them. Remember, King Rehoboam thought that he could enforce his desires upon the nation of Israel, and he lost ten of the twelve tribes. 
you as fathers. Can a father enforce submission always? Or will there reach a point in time where if he hasn't trained submission, if he hasn't earned submission, there will be rebellion? There will be. What force will you use in keeping submission? You say, well, stoning, if we lived in the Old Testament, even stoning doesn't enforce submission. Who, do you, who did you stone? Those that had never submitted. Stoning doesn't create submission. It's a voluntary relationship. As a child becomes a teenager and begins to feel and exert his own independence, he must consciously choose to submit to his parents if he's going to honor God. So it is with wives. So it is with kings. So it is in churches. A man cannot walk into a congregation, though he might be legally ordained, and say, I'm taking the oversight of this congregation, and I'll shoot all of you who don't submit. Does that create submission? Who would he end up shooting? Those that refuse to submit. It doesn't create submission. It's got to be a voluntary relationship, and the apostles bringing that point to bear here. And submit yourselves. You need to voluntarily in your minds make a choice that the pastor you have is God's man that he's chosen for this congregation and I voluntarily choose to submit to him in the matters that I just mentioned. It's the only way it can work. Now I'm supposed to take the oversight thereof and that's where a lot of churches fail. The church is most willing to submit to their pastor and have him rule them as a New Testament minister, and he doesn't take the oversight. First Peter 5.2 tells me, as an elder, take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. I'm to take it, just like a father is to take his position of authority, just like a husband is to take his position of authority. But again, there must be both sides doing their part. The one under authority, voluntarily submitting. The one in authority, taking the oversight. Once we have a relationship of pastor-church, where you have agreed to submit to me, I've agreed to take the oversight of the congregation, then it is my job to enforce that submission. And it is your job to enforce that submission by excluding those that would be guilty of sedition. Obeying your minister is the greatest thing you can ever do for your minister. I don't stand at the back and shake your hands in the morning waiting to hear 50 of you say, Good sermon, Pastor, and I knew you'd slept through the whole thing. Most ministers will do that this morning in Greenville. I don't do that. I think that's a farce. But your obedience is what I look for, and that is the most gratifying reward of all when I see in your lives what I have taught. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and see the Apostle Paul's attitude toward his labor among churches, in churches. How would you like to work diligently and give your life for six months, a year, two years, you engineers know, to some great project, either to win a bid or to finish a project, and then the project is scrapped. It is demoralizing, especially if you thought you had done your best to have it scrapped. Now, I'm not just giving six months or a year. I'm giving my life, and so did the apostle. 
Look what he said in Galatians 4.11. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. It is my personal labor upon you personally that I'm bestowing, and it is by obedience that I receive any reward. Paul was afraid that his labor might have been in vain with the Galatians. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. This is a minister's thought pattern. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. The Thessalonian church was one of the very finest in the New Testament. Yet, Paul said this, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, he tried not to worry about it, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now this morning, I didn't say what I said because of what I was going to preach this morning. I said what I said because of how I felt yesterday afternoon. I would like some feedback from some of you men because I need it, because I fear and I can no longer forbear. I can no longer put up with my discouragement on Saturday afternoons. I want to know if I'm getting to you that I haven't run in vain in this effort. Look at Ezekiel 33. Why is it important to obey them that have the rule over you? Ezekiel 33. It's because if you don't obey you're going to lose your minister. And if you say, well, that wouldn't be all that bad, in some respects, I don't blame you. In other respects, I warn you that it could be a lot worse. Ezekiel 33 and verse 30. Son of man. He's talking to me. The children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. That's why I don't stand at the back and shake hands. Anyone can flatter with their mouth like that and go after their own covetousness. I'm looking for the obedience that's lacking under the ministry of Ezekiel. Verse 32, And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. They go for the entertainment. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, that is God's judgment upon Israel, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet is among them. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. And why would they lose their prophet? And why would God's judgment come? Because they spoke nice things to their minister, but they did not hear and do what he said. Look at Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. I may have read this several weeks ago, but I'll read it again. Isaiah 29, because it scares me. And if you're not scared for yourselves, at least be scared for me. 
Isaiah 29, beginning at verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, and what am I but a ruler? The seers hath he covered, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Staggering and drunkenness, but no wine and no strong drink, just a deep sleep put by God upon His ministers, His ministers, His seers, when the people of God do not obey. I do not want to have this book become sealed to me. I do not want to become unlearned. But it will happen if you do not obey them that have the rule over you. Hebrews 13, 17. You can look around. Many of us came from churches. We came from denominations in which it was so visibly obvious that the man in the pulpit was the most ignorant in the congregation when it came to the Word of God or one of the most ignorant, because God had poured out upon him a deep sleep. He was drunk, but not with wine. He was drunk with the confusion that God grants when his people do not take heed and do what has been said by their minister. Look at Hebrews thirteen seventeen again. The Apostle Paul said that if my life should be offered upon the faith and works of the Philippians, I could rejoice going to the state because of an obedient church. Obedience is the greatest thing you can ever do for your pastor. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. What's a watcher called in the New Testament? An overseer. A watcher is an overseer. There in Isaiah we read about a seer. That's what a prophet was called in the Old Testament, a man who was God's messenger and revealed God's word to the people. I am to watch for your souls. That's part of my job. That's my job description. I'm an overseer. I am to see as much as I possibly can of what is going on in your lives and, as we'll see in a minute, give an account of that to God. That's what an overseer is. I watch for your souls. You fathers, you watch for your families, don't you? Are they growing intellectually? Are they growing physically? Do they have their needs taken care of? Are they learning to manage their temperament and personality? You oversee your families. It's my job to oversee the congregation of the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 just to pick a text that uses that particular word, overseer. 
Remember, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, to take the oversight thereof. I am to take the job of watching out for all of you, spiritually. Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is taking leave from the church at Ephesus, and he meets with all of the elders before he leaves. And he says in verse 28, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I'm an overseer. I'm to watch the souls that God has given me charge for. And I'm to feed your souls so that there can be some growth that I can see. There's not going to be any if I don't feed. Just as with your children, if you don't educate them, there's not going to be any progress. You're going to have a moron at 20 like you had when he was born. If you're not making any efforts to train them and provide for their needs. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.18. I just want to look at a few passages where the Apostle Paul shows that he was a good listener and a good watcher. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18. My mother describes my ability at hearing things in other rooms as having Crosby ears. Because I could be in my bedroom at home and my parents were 50 feet away, 60 feet away in a long ranch. And I'd generally overhear what they were saying and repeat it to them later. My mother said I had Crosby ears. Well, I try to have them when it comes to this congregation for this reason. 1 Corinthians 11:18. The apostle wrote, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Paul had heard a rumor from some members of this congregation that there were troubles at the church at Corinth. And he heard it, and he partly believed it, knowing the nature and characteristic of the people that made up that church. Here's Paul showing us he was a good overseer. Look at Galatians 2 and verse 14. Galatians 2, 14. This is when Peter arrived from Jerusalem with other Jews, behaved himself in a hypocritical manner, and Paul opens his eyes and looks. Galatians 2.14 But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, Paul saw all these Jews and Gentiles dissembling themselves because Peter was there. And instead of rebuking all of them, he went after the root of the problem, and that was Peter. And he rebuked Peter before them all. And to see the apostle Peter rebuked, it would be like rebuking the Pope today, because Peter was a pillar of the circumcision. It was a strong statement by Paul to check the danger that he saw. Notice, he's an overseer, so he sees things and he jumps on them. Now, I try not to jump impulsively. But nonetheless, when I see things that warrant attention, I try to give them attention. It's much easier to put out a small fire than a large one. It's easier to put out sparks and uh, campfires than it is to put out a forest fire as we tried to learn with 
Smokey the Bear some time ago. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. A minister isn't always seeing and hearing bad things. Hopefully. He'd quit. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Wherefore I also, after I heard, Paul's always asking, Paul's always listening. I'm asking about the state of your souls. I'm asking what's bothering you. When I see your face clouded, when I see you downcast, I try to ask. I may not get to all of you. I may, it may be a long while between when I get to you and, and the next time I get to you. But I'll ask, or I'll ask your husband, or I'll ask your wife, or I'll ask your children, or I'll ask parents of their children, or I'll ask friends. If I hear that two of you have been together, I may ask how so-and-so is doing. I want to know everything I can. Paul said, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That's hearing a good report and thanking God for the great testimony of their faith and love toward the saints. And I'll show you in a minute, that would have been a nice prayer for the Ephesians. To have had a prayer giving thanks to God for their obedience. Now a good minister makes diligent search. Do you remember the, verb, the passage in Deuteronomy 13 that says, If you hear say... Yes, hear say is a Bible word. If you hear say in one of your cities that some of the people have gone off to worship another god, then it is the responsibility of a judge to go and search out that matter by diligent inquisition. That's being an overseer. Listen, if you're a father that just sits at home and waits for your kids to come and tell you the problems in their life, you aren't an overseer. You're a fool. A good overseer is probing all the time to find out everything he can. And making diligent inquisition. Look at Proverbs 25 and verse 2. Most of you could quote it. Right? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Proverbs 25 and verse 2. It may be God's glory to know and deal with the thing and yet hide it from everyone else. But it is the glory of a good king a good overseer, a good ruler, to be diligently inquiring into the affairs of those under his authority. That's what an overseer is. Proverbs 25 and verse 2. So when I probe, when I ask questions, I'm doing it because I want to know the state of this congregation the very best that I can because that is my job for I must watch for your souls. I am an overseer. Let's go back to Hebrews 13 and 17. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. What is the Bible term of the man that is given charge for the financial affairs of a household or of a kingdom and he's to give an account to the householder or to the king as to what's been going on financially? A steward. Not only am I an overseer to be to recognize and to see and to search out what's going on in the congregation and to watch for your souls, I'm also a steward. Does the Bible use that phrase relative to a minister? 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1 and 2. As a steward, I'm responsible to God to report back to Him 
what I have learned. Now, God knows it all. And God knows it all. But He wants His minister to serve in that role of ambassador. What does an ambassador do in a nation? He communicates to that nation a message from his own country of goodwill, of war, whatever the case might be. And on the other hand, he picks up the sentiments, the feelings in that nation and communicates them back home. He is a channel of communication in two directions. And my job is to be an ambassador for Christ. I bring to you His message. I give to you His word. And yet I also take back your performance to Him. You say, why has God done it that way? Ask Him when you get to heaven. He's just done it that way. Mark 13, 34 said that when Jesus Christ went to heaven, He transferred His authority to other men. You know, when He ascended up on high, He gave gifts to men, pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. And it is their job to be the medium for this two-way communication of information. I communicate God's Word to you. I communicate to God your performance. Because I'm a steward and responsible for an accounting. You are not my people. You are God's people. And it is my responsibility to give an account of you to God, for you are God's people and He's put me in charge of you. Let's check on how Paul reported in. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You know, a good ambassador is constantly sending messages home to keep his home rulers intimately and currently informed of every detail that would be to their benefit of what's going on in the nation where his embassy is located. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, the apostle said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. There's Paul checking in with the church at Rome. I thank my God. He gets on his knees and he thanks God. He, he thanks God for the faith of the Romans. He's reporting in as a good steward. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. You know I could multiply these places indefinitely because the apostle was a good overseer. He was a good steward. He was constantly giving an account of his churches. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul would remember the performance of the Philippians. Every time he remembered it, he got a smile on his face. He glowed. And then he thanked God on every remembrance of them because the Philippian church was a fine church. He's reporting in. Look at Philemon. Titus Philemon, Hebrews. Philemon. Now I gave you two examples, Romans 1.8 and Philippians 1.3 of Paul reporting in for a church. Now look at Philemon. This is a letter addressed to an individual man. He says in verses 4 and 5, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Again, Paul was a listener. He heard what was going on. He knew the reputation of Philemon. He recorded that reputation on his hard disk in his mind. And when he offered his prayer to God, he searched that disk, came up with Philemon, and thanked God for Philemon. 
Philemon was a rich man too, and I don't have to guess why. Because Paul was offering thanksgiving for this man individually in every one of his prayers. According to these two verses, there is Paul the steward reporting in with God. Did Paul ever give an evil report? 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And brethren, there are three men named in the book of Timothy. I would not want to have been in their shoes. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20. Let's get verse 19. Paul tells Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I would not consider that a good report. Can you imagine the apostle on his knees? His face begins to glow like Moses did when he came down from the mount, as he prays about the Philippians, as he prays about the Romans, as he prays about Philemon. And then his face clouds over. And the intensity of his voice picks up. And you can hear the grief and the frustration, the anger in his voice. And he prays for God to deliver Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That would not have been to their prophet. Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. I wouldn't like that prayer offered up in my name by a minister of Christ, especially of the Apostle Paul. Of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. There's two ministers communicating about the dangerousness of a particular church member or contact that they had. Alexander the coppersmith. The Lord reward him according to his works. How much better to hear 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. We are looking at verses of Scripture that fill out and show us how a minister is to be an overseer, to hear, to watch your souls, your growth, your progress, and then to give an account of that to God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. For ye remember, brethren, I want chapter 3 and verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? Sounds like he's done a lot of thanksgiving so that he can't render any more. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. What more could Paul say in the way of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians? He commended them so highly for their performance and he did it with great joy and when a minister is able to give an account of your soul with joy it is to your profit as Hebrews 13, 17 tells us. Now look at Hebrews 13, 17 again. I hope that the word unprofitable in this verse 
means as much to you as it does to me. I may have more of a profit-oriented mentality than some. I think clerics by nature have a more utilitarian, profit-oriented mind than others. I hope that every breath I draw and everything I do results in some type of profit. Because if your action isn't profitable, or if your life isn't profitable, blow your brains out. That's my attitude toward life. If you're not going to make everything you do profitable, end it. Because why live if you're not going to be profitable? If you're not going to be doing things profitable, then end your life. Why live? I can't understand why anybody would want to live unless profit is your motive. And I just don't mean dollars and cents. I mean pleasing God, growing in wisdom, improving your family, improving your own life, increasing in knowledge. I say all that to ask you how important is the last part of Hebrews thirteen seventeen to you when it says, for that is unprofitable for you. We are not the church of Rome where I am a priest that can determine whether you make it to hell, purgatory, or heaven. I'm a New Testament minister of the gospel of Christ that can make a difference whether you have a profitable life or not. You say, do you glory in that power you have over me? No, I don't glory in it. But it's something God's given and it's something I'm supposed to use because it's a job requirement to give an account for the souls under my care. It can be a profitable exercise for you or it can be unprofitable. It can be to your advantage. It can be to your great disadvantage. If I do it with joy or if I do it with grief, and believe me, there are members in this church that have, many of them are gone, that have grieved me to no end. And there are members in this church that have grieved me from time to time. And God knows about it because God hears my groanings and grief and bangings on my desk. And there are others that when I'm in a moment of grief, I can stop and sit back and usually it's my wife that can remind me, what about so-and-so? And then my face glows. As I remember somebody that brings joy to my heart for their submission to the gospel and an account is given to them joyfully. An account is given of them to God joyfully. It's for your profit, brethren, and I don't want to underestimate this point. In Numbers chapter 16, which I dealt with extensively on January 29th, Numbers chapter 16 and verse 15, you say, well, how do we know when we're grieving you? I preach four hours a Sunday, and if I'm not plain, please, somebody tell me how to be plain on what I'm looking for from this congregation. You say, do you, do you include some of the temperamental weaknesses that I have? Indeed. Numbers 16 and verse 15. Here's Moses giving an evil report. Remember all the men that stood up against Moses? And Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. 
I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. There's Moses making a prayer and giving an account to God that isn't very joyful. It's very grievous. He's very angry because these men are accusing him of false motives in his in discharging his office. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe what effect that prayer had. It wasn't to their profit. Unless you call falling alive into the pit profitable. As the earth opens up and swallows you, your family, and everything that you ever owned. That's what happened. Elisha once prayed against some children, didn't he? He gave an account. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Forty-two children met two she-bears, and it wasn't a pleasant meeting. They didn't pet the bears, and neither did the bears purr. They tear, they tore the forty-two children because a minister of God cursed them in the name of the Lord, as Moses cursed these men by saying, Respect not thou their offering. Sometimes, now I'm letting you know how your minister operates. God knows, my wife knows, I know, and anyone who knows me knows that I am a very merciful pastor. Anyone who doesn't believe that doesn't know the real Jonathan Crosby at all because he'd rip your head off for the least infraction by nature. I remember one time in the Detroit church preaching a message entitled Principles of Christian Conduct. By the time I got through with that message, I basically said, if you enjoy it, it's sin. One sister called the pastor later that week and said she was sick. And she said, if he was our pastor, I wouldn't be a member, would I? No, I mean if a family missed one one assembly eight years ago, I was all over the pastor of that congregation as to why he let that happen. Because I couldn't take somebody that had the impunity to miss an assembly. And there was very difficult problems to ever see me ordained with an attitude like that. Until one time I had the opportunity to preach a message and the message was entitled Mercy and Long-Suffering. About six months before I was ordained and that made all the difference to that point in my training process. And then the day I was ordained, things changed so much I cannot believe it to this day. The amount of mercy I was given by the gift of Almighty God to be merciful because inside I do not have any. If somebody wants to play games, I'd just as soon rip their face off and send them out that door. The only kind of flock I'd have are rams that could pull me. I can't stand carrying lambs. I can't stand holding hands of the weak and pitiful brethren. By nature, I say all that. So how do you, how, how do you manage it? You ask. I manage it two ways and they're Bible ways. First of all, turn to Luke 13. When I became the pastor of this church, we had an attendance problem. A very severe one by a brother. Some of you rams that are more like the way I used to be were on my back. When are we going to get rid of this brother? I said, give me time. 
Give me time. Give me some time. And it was a while, wasn't it? It was frustrating. You think it was frustrating to you? You don't get to see my insides. But it was frustrating to me. Here's how I handle it in one way. I blame myself. When I see a brother weak, I grieve that I have somehow failed that brother. And here is my prayer, Luke 13, verse 6. Jesus spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. I sometimes see that there's no fruit in the life in this congregation. Then said he, now this is the Lord Jesus speaking to me, unto the dresser of his vineyard, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? You say, do you mean the Lord is less merciful than you are? Indeed. Can I prove that with the Bible? How many times did God say to Moses, stand back and let me annihilate this nation? And Moses fell on his face and begged for mercy before Almighty God and saved the nation by his intercession. If you think I'm impatient, even in the way I've just described myself by nature, I'm still not as impatient as Almighty God when it comes to sin. The Lord Jesus says to me from his word many times, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And I answer and say unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. I know it's been three years, but let it alone another year till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And you have heard that prayer, and this is how it goes. I recognize the lack of fruit. I can see an empty tree, and Christ can see an empty tree, and I can read in his word what he thinks of empty trees. But I will pray for more time. More time. And you, some of you brethren have seen problems and you've come to me and you've wondered, well, do I know the problem exists? Why haven't I done something about it? And I'll say, give me some more time. I want to save that brother because Christ has called me to save, not to destroy sheep. A pastor doesn't kick lambs off of cliffs. A pastor carries them as far as he can. And then he eats them for supper. I speak as a fool. Can't carry him forever. Can't carry him forever. They suffer atrophy and die. Nobody can carry a lamb forever. You nurse the thing for a while, and then you preach a sermon, every man shall bear his own burden. And that sermon came at what point in my ministry? Four years. And that sermon was salvation to me because I was about to destroy myself with care for babies. And you men know one particular case that I'm talking about. Look at Acts chapter 20. One method is I beg God for more time. Another method is I preach that message that I just referred to. Be sure your sin will find you out or every man shall bear his own burden. And I have this to say when I pray to God regarding one of your souls. Paul said in Acts 20 and verse 26, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I reach a point 
where I have to say before God about you, I've done everything I can. I've preached everything I know. I've tried to make it as plain as possible. I've tried to make it as forceful as possible. I've tried to review it. I've tried to encourage privately. I'm pure from your blood. Why was Paul so concerned about being pure from their blood? Because a tree without fruit, if it doesn't have fruit on it because Paul hadn't dug around it and dunged it, guess who suffered? Paul did. But as long as a minister has a good conscience that he has dug well and dung well, he can say, I'm pure from the blood of all men. Look at Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. Here's why Paul was worried. Ezekiel 3.17, Son of man, he's speaking to me. I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Is he speaking to me? What's an overseer? A watchman. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. There's a minister who hasn't done his job as diligently as he should have. Verse 19, Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man, the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live. Because he is warned, also thou hast delivered thy soul. That is my job. To warn the wicked from their wicked way and to warn the righteous man from the stumbling block that I see in their lives. We did some of that yesterday. And I told you yesterday my attitude toward practical matters that we dealt with yesterday. It is a very merciful one. Extremely merciful. I tremble before God that it is too merciful. I would love to make it black and white based on my own judgment. I try to preach it hard and leave it up to you before Almighty God. But you know the direction, you know the emphasis that I have left you with. And if you want to violate that, I am pure from your blood. You say, you, all, you sound awful angry this morning. Oh, I just sound intense. I don't sound angry. I'm just intense because I want to communicate a point. I want everyone in this church to have a profitable life. God will take care of me. I want to take care of you. I want you to have a profitable life. I want God to be smiling down upon your homes. And I didn't take this position to myself to be able to offer an account to God, God requires it of me. I never wanted it. I wish someone else was giving an account of me instead. But God made the difference. I want you to see the importance of that account. <laughs> Hebrews 13 and verse 17. If you don't want to do it for yourself because the profit is yours, then do it for me so that I can have some joy. 
I'm trying to appeal to you every way I can. If you don't care about yourself, care about me. Let me do it with joy and not grief. I don't like grief. Listen, I love the prayer of Jabez. Lord, save me from evil that my life not grieve me. I like a life like that. I don't want grief. So do it for me. If you can't do it for God and your own prophet. Some of you brethren in this church, if you ever wonder where some of your blessing comes from, and I don't say this haughtily, God knows how much joy you give me in my soul. You're a lifesaver. Someday, if I ever get courageous, I may name you in front of the congregation. Wouldn't that be a horrifying day? Verses 18 and 19. I can't tell you enough what it means to sit at my desk on the verge of despair and to have my wife see me that way and for her to remind me because I, I do have an ability. I can think negatively when I allow myself. And my wife will come in and go right down through the list and pull out those names she knows will prick me in my conscience. And I grin. And you are a lifesaver to me, those of you who obey well and who are full of faith and good works. Number 18, verse 18 Paul said, pray for us. He meant himself and Timothy and other ministers, pray for us. Now he gives two reasons why he wants them to pray for him. The first reason is we trust, we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. I've made this point to you and it wasn't until studying this 13th chapter that I realized this verse spoke so well to a point I've made in the past. There is no reason nor profit to pray for someone who isn't doing what they can for themselves. That's what he's saying in verse 18. Pray for us. Then he gives a reason why they ought to pray for him. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Paul's conscience and Paul's will was one to live as honestly and righteously as he possibly could. And when you get a man like that, you can pray for him without qualms. When you have a man that's slothful, why should you pray for a job for him? I don't. You say you're a hard man. Thank you for the commendation. I want to be like my Lord. If you're out hitting the streets and working to get a better job, I'll pray for you. I'll do anything in my power to help you get a better job. I'll go to interviews with you. I'll write letters for you. I'll put your resume on my computer. I'll do anything I can to help you. When you've got a good conscience and you're willing to live honestly in all things. That's the first reason he wanted, he justified prayer for himself. In verse 19, he had another reason. And this ought to have made them feel good. But I beseech you the rather to do this. Here's a better reason to pray for me. That I may be restored to you the sooner. I want to see you. Pray for me that I can see you. That's what I really want from you. There's a reason as to why he asked for their prayers. I've been over the prayer for the minister in the past. You can pray for me against my flesh. You can pray for me in my family. You can pray for me in my health. You can pray for me in my studies. You can pray for me in evangelism. You can pray for wisdom. Above all things, pray for wisdom for your pastor. Verses 20 and 21 are, in my judgment, the finest benediction 
in the Word of God. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the benediction and formal close of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. He starts out by saying, Now the God of peace, the God the Hebrews knew was not so much a God of peace because there had been no peace found yet. There had been no ransom found yet to make peace. You go back and read the book of Deuteronomy, the God described to Israel by Moses was a God, a terrible God, a mighty, that will not by any means clear the guilty. Now, does that give you peace? To know that He will not by any means clear the guilty. It was not a peaceful understanding of God that the Hebrews had under the law. I read in John 1.17, the law, and the, the law was by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace was revealed in Jesus Christ. And it was through Christ, through His blood, through His resurrection, by which peace is made for us. The gospel is called the gospel of peace in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 because it is the message that reconciliation has occurred. When two parties are reconciled, it means they've made peace with each other. And Paul, as a New Testament minister, was an ambassador for Christ stating the message, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, that God has been reconciled to us through Christ, be ye reconciled to God. It was a message of peace. Now the God of peace. This was a revelation to the Hebrews. This was a new message. All those sacrifices under the old covenant, what did they do relative to sin? They made a remembrance of sin. Now does that give you a good feeling of peace? What does the sacrifice of the new covenant do? put sin away forever because he made peace through his cross by the shedding of his blood. What a difference. And so Paul says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The Jews tried to kill him and they did for three days. The Jews tried to keep him dead as far as knowledge by paying the soldiers great sums of money. Matthew 27 and Matthew 28. The Jews tried to make him dead the Jews tried to keep him dead, but Paul could write to the Jews that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now all those Hebrews, the rumors were circulating. You know what UPI and AP was carrying back then. The disciples came and stole the body away, and he was still dead. But the Apostle Paul in his benediction reminds them of that great fact, that he had seen him, 500 other brethren, the other apostles, that Jesus was brought back again from the dead. He was the great shepherd of the sheep. I could turn you to prophecies in the book of Ezekiel where God told Israel, I will give you a shepherd, David by name, that will be over you as my people. That was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrews offered lambs or sheep as a sacrifice to remember sin. But this sacrifice was not of a sheep. This sacrifice was of the shepherd himself. 
which was so far superior to any sheep. Yes, he was called the Lamb of God, but he's also the shepherd of the sheep. Those that God had given him, he died for them and secured their salvation into a Hebrew. What a salvation. What a message of salvation. After years of living in a system where sins were remembered, not forgiven and forgotten. His death was by covenant arrangement before the world began where we look for all of our salvation just as David did when he laid in his deathbed and said, Although my house be not so with God, he knew his house wasn't going to be like that of Christ, yet God hath made with me an everlasting covenant. The very same words we have here. Ordered in all things and sure, and this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Those are the last words of David. I wish I could go out of this world with the last words like that. Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. Our salvation is a covenant salvation ordered by God in all things and sure. Because God has arranged the beginning from the end as far as our eternal salvation by the blood of Christ whether it's election, justification, regeneration, or glorification, all our salvation is wrapped up in God's covenant. As far as the forgiveness of our sins, and believe me, brethren, that's a message of peace. Now the God of peace that did those things for us make you perfect in every good work to do His will. Why would Paul make a prayer like that for these Hebrews unless he had made an assumption that they also had a good conscience? He made an assumption that they also had a good conscience wanting to live honestly in this world before God. And so he prays for God to work in them every good work to do his will and those things that are well-pleasing in his sight. God gives us the ability, the basic ability, to do those things that are pleasing in his sight by regeneration. We are created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has ordered what we are supposed to do in this world, and He's given us the means by regeneration. But you don't have complete means. You know which means you have? Means to get started. Means to get started. As you use what God gives you, He gives you more. Otherwise, a prayer like this has no meaning. If regeneration is all you need, why is Paul praying? If we're fatalists, and if we don't pray and God doesn't work us in us, we can't do it, then why would he say, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh? We're to be doing some walking and God's going to do some giving. That's how you grow. That's how you increase in righteousness and doing those things that are well-pleasing to him. How many times have you got on your knees and prayed to God for strength to do some particular righteous thing and then you got up off your knees and you went and did it? You went and walked in the Spirit. You went and walked to do what you were called upon to do and yet you're trusting God for the strength to boost your walking. That's the way it works. I could turn you to numerous passages in the New Testament where Paul's always praying for his churches to increase in good works. You must take the first step given the, given the ability God has given through regeneration. Then he adds further strength to do better and better as you utilize 
what he's given. Now, if you begin to take for granted and to bury what he's given, he'll take away what you think you have. You'll end up a pauper. Like the man that had the talent taken away and given to him that had ten. In God's scheme, whether it is economics or spirituality, the rich get richer and the poor get poor, and I love a God like that. I don't believe in welfare. I don't think the man with ten should have divvied up five and given to the man that had one. I think the man that had one should have given his to the man that had ten and should have shot the man that didn't use his. Because again, I'll go back to this point I made earlier. If you're not going to live for profit, shoot yourself. If you're going to bury the talents God gave you, you're a worthless piece of human flesh. And believe me, they didn't shoot them, just cast them into utter darkness. Go read it. Matthew 25. God will bless you as you walk. See, Paul's praying here for God to give them that boost, that strength, that support, that help, that comfort, that enablement, as they used what they already had. He wouldn't have prayed for them unless he assumed that what was true of him in verse 18 was also true of them. Remember in verse 18 he said, Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. That's where it starts. God gives you a regenerated will where you purpose, I want to please God. As you purpose, God will then work in you the strength and enablement to do it. That's Hebrews 13 and verse 21. And Paul can't take the name, the, the, the name or the words the Jesus Christ and just leave them hanging in that 21st verse. He must say, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's his formal benediction. Then he adds a PS and a PSS and a PSSS. Remember when you used to write letters to friends and you write a PS and then you forgot something else? You Remember? PSS? And then P3S's, Paul did it too. Verse 22, and I like the first P.S. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. He begs the Hebrew... You know why I like that. <laughs> he begs the Hebrew brethren to accept this 13-chapter word of exhortation. This is a point I have made since the first time I opened this book to you people. Hebrews is not so much a book of explanation as it is a book of exhortation. It is a book trying to convince those Jews to hold fast their profession of faith, and it is the way I have interpreted the entire book consistently from beginning to end. And when I get to the end, Paul says it was a word of exhortation. So whenever I find a difficult passage, I wonder, how does this fit with exhortation? How is this convincing these Hebrews to hold fast their profession of faith? And that's how we've interpreted this book. But he asks for them to permit him to exhort them. Because it's a strong exhortation. He asks them to listen to me. Hear me out as you read this book. Think about what I've said. For I've written a letter unto you in few words. How many of you don't raise your hands? Have you ever received a letter from me in the first paragraph I've said? This short letter is simply to remind you of some of your duties and mention some 
mention some things to you. Then five, six, four, seven, eight pages later, I finally conclude. Single spaced. Paul did it too. Hebrews 13 is a long letter. And he said, I've written to you in few words, but he said he had one word. It was a word of exhortation for them to hold fast their profession of faith. Verse 23, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. See, this is a little PSS. He's just informing them that Timothy's been set at liberty. It appears very clearly here that Timothy was in Rome with Paul. He'd been set at liberty. Paul didn't know yet what was going to happen to him. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. We can shed some light on this by going to Philippians chapter 2 where Paul said, I don't know yet what's going to happen to me, but as soon as I know, I'll come and see you Philippians with Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, you can read the very same thing. He wasn't sure what was going to happen in Rome. Verse 24, salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. Paul often did this. Romans chapter 16 is a list of salutations by name where Paul exhorted the congregation to salute one another in his name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to greet one another with an holy kiss, celebrating the information, the gospel that he had shared with them. And then he says in verse 24, they of Italy salute you. Paul was a profitable man. It didn't matter whether, whether he was in a prison in Rome, whether he was in Caesar's household, he was profitable wherever he was. And we can read another place where he said, they of Caesar's household greet you. Why, he was converting the family of the very man that would have him have his head cut off. Isn't that a profitable man? That's a man who wasn't looking for self-pity because he was in prison and his life had turned out to be such a failure. He was a man that was in Rome to go on trial because of the gospel and he's converting the family of the pagan Roman emperor. They of Italy salute you. And then his token in every epistle of his as we read in Second Thessalonians, grace be with you all. Amen. I hope that this study of the book of Hebrews has made this book easier for you to read in the future. I hope it's given you some things to think about. I hope it has set forth Jesus Christ preeminently superior to all, even of God's religion under the Old Testament. I hope you can see examples of cogent, powerful, logical reasoning from the first chapter to the last chapter as the apostle does his best under inspiration to persuade a group not to fall away from the true faith, but to hold fast their original profession. I'll have an outline for you next Sunday, the Lord willing. It's around 45 pages of all that we've learned in this book of Hebrews. May God bless us to live some consistent, diligent, patient, enduring lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, which was the message and word of exhortation of this book. May Jesus Christ be praised.